church I've been going through a series. This is my last Sunday, six Sundays, yeah, six Sundays, five Sundays anyway, on, on a springboard from Isaiah 40, verse 31 in the Old Testament. Isaiah is writing to the people who will be in the Babylonian captivity far from their home. They're depressed, they're discouraged, they're far from where they want to be. And he gives them this promise to a disconsolate, broken, hurting people. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. What a promise. And, and the question is, what must we do to experience that? Now, here's my answer. I talked about the habits of grace, which means that there are certain things that we do to put ourselves in the path where Jesus is walking. And as we do those things, we cry out, Almighty Savior, have mercy upon me. So Jesus has to touch us, but my belief is that we give ourselves to these habits of grace so that we can experience the reality of Jesus. And the four I've mentioned, or I'll mention by the end of the day, is number one is, is the Scripture, the Word of God. Not just hearing it occasionally or reading it, which is good, but really thinking about it. And I spoke from Psalm 1 that says that on his law, the godly man will meditate day and night, which means to ponder or think. And he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And he will yield his fruit in season and his leaf will never wither. And whatever he does will prosper. And the streams of water, according to the New Testament, would be an, a descriptive term of, of who Jesus is. So it's the word. It's, it's really letting the word teach us. And, and then also Christian fellowship or friendship that we give ourselves to understanding the importance of just being with one another. Hebrews chapter uh, 10 is written to a group of people that were kind of vacillating in their faith. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, he says, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is his body, Death and the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, see, let us, all of us, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith or hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together, he says, as some people are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another more and more as you see the day drawing near. So it is fellowship with like-minded brothers. A great verse in Proverbs 18, it says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Wow. Boom. The third thing was having the mindset of a steward. A steward is someone who's entrusted with resources to be used faithfully. I've said the last two weeks, if you're a believer in Jesus, you will never be judged for your sin. It's covered by the work of Christ. Man, that's good news. And yet, we will be held to account for the faithful use of what the Lord gives us as believers. 
And so we live with sobriety. We live with a sense of high calling. And so this morning, last session, is understanding the rhythms of grace, the rhythms of the Holy Spirit, which leads to human flourishing. Now, John Calvin closes out the Institute of the Christian Religion with a section on the use of the law. When it comes to the moral law of the Old Testament, he says, and people said this for the centuries, the moral use of the law in the Old Testament, there are three purposes for like the Ten Commandments. The first is this. It shows us, it mirrors for us the reality of my sin and the holiness of God. It shows my sin and the holiness of God. It says, don't steal or, or don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And we go, well, I, I have a tendency to sometimes say things I shouldn't say. And, and it shows me my sin and it drives me to the cross to say, I can never keep God's moral law. I need a savior. But the second use is the use of what we call civil righteousness. Or, or it gives us a framework that Basically, in culture at large, certain things you don't do. There's a book called The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. And he talks about how there has never been a culture with a rare exception that applauded murder. That don't murder is written on our hearts, reinforced by the moral law. There's never been a culture that esteemed adultery. They just don't. Or, or, or applauded theft. Or stood up and gave awards for liars. All those things are written on our heart and they're reinforced by the moral law. But the third use for us, for those of us who are believers, I'm talking to Christians today. If you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. But if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, the, 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 the moral law points us into how we should live. It is a rule and a guide. It's a family code. We are creating Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. So, so it is a way of showing us how we flourish in the Lord. Now, let me just tell you this. As I think, thought about the Ten Commandments and I pray through them, and I, 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 get, I get them except for one. I'm going to preach on the one that I sometimes just don't get. So the Ten Commandments real quickly. Number one, know the God's before me. Number two, don't make an idol. Number three, be very, very careful how you use the Lord's name. Don't ever use it frivolously because the Lord's name is holy. It is sacred. And you see, when we do those things, it leads to our flourishing. Because when we make an idol of our business or our, our athleticism, our intellect, our, even our family, um, our, our financial security, we put a burden on those entities they never were meant to bear, and they can't do it. If you get married and you look at your spouse and you say, you're going to meet all of my needs, that's a burden they never can bear. You look at your kids and say, you've got to be perfect. They can't bear that burden. You look at your parents, you've got to be the best parents in the world. We can't bear that burden. And so that's making an idol, and idols invariably disappoint in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He's writing to the people of Israel. They, they, they've walked away from the Lord, and the Lord thunders forth. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug broken cisterns that can't even hold water. It's a horrible thing. And he says, you know, I, the Lord says, am the fountain of living water. One of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. 
The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They, 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 wicked people, as they progressively go in darkness, just can't, they, they can't get it together. Godly people, so, so human flourishing. The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. I get that. Because when you, God made the family, when you honor your father and your mother, you give them the, the respect they do. You, you obey their lawful commands. They ask you to do anything that's unbiblical. We say, I got to obey God, not man. But, but you honor, you don't, you don't speak ill of them. You, you pray for them. You care for them. Because, and it go, the Bible says, if you do it, it will go well with your soul. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And murder, we know murder, Jesus says, not only murder like this, but murder like this. You, you don't speak ill of people. You guard their reputation. You're very parsimonious with your words when it comes to saying anything that's negative. And we live in a culture that murders people every day in talk radio. That's the culture you live in. Don't go there. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. God gloriously gave us intimacy for marriage between a man and a woman. To go outside of that in thought, in, in, in word, and in deed is to go against the standards of God, and your life will not prosper. Eighth commandment, don't steal. See, not only do you not steal, but you, the, you're supposed to guard your neighbor's possessions. Because if you steal, you cheapen yourself, and you, you, you lose your integrity, and your character falls apart. Don't, don't, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Uh, because when you lie and you put people down, you don't guard them, your life disintegrates and you're not, you're, you're not full with integrity and you don't flourish. The last one, don't covet. Don't covet your, your neighbor's wife or his boat or his cars or his house or his IRA or his, his stock portfolio. Be content with what the Lord gives you because when you start coveting and looking and doing and doing and doing and doing, it, it builds dissatisfaction in your spirit. I understand all of those things. I get it. They lead to human flourishing. Let me tell you the one of the ten that I struggle with and our culture struggles with. Number five. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days the Lord worked and on the seventh he rested. Now, in the history of the Sabbath discussion, I have one Sunday to talk about this, <laughs> and it's the Sunday of winter break, so probably it's not the best Sunday because a lot of people are gone. But in this whole discussion, here's a continuum. Over here are the Sabbatarians. A lot of the Puritans were Sabbatarians, and the Sabbatarians, the Westminster Confession of Faith, I love it, but it's a pretty heavy-handed Sabbatarian. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that you should only worship and, and worship and listen to the Word on the Lord's Day. That's all, the only thing you do on the Lord's Day. They, don't, they didn't mean that. You've got to go to the bathroom. You've got to eat, but they, they really made an overstatement, okay? So here's, here's Sabbatarians. Over here, people says it's no big deal. Every day is just alike. Sunday's not a big deal. They're dead wrong. I want to bring you here, somewhere around here. That's why I'm going to quote from a confession that was 80 years before the Westminster Confession, 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's in the worship guide, and it's a great statement. And it says this. It says, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? Answer, first, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I love that, 
the festive day of rest. I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, which we just did, to pray to God publicly, and to give Christian alms. I love this concept of the festive day of rest. A guy named Irenaeus said this, died in 202. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive and the life of man is the vision of God. So, so the question is, how, how the glory of God is man fully alive and the life of man is the vision of God. How do I see God clearly? I'm going to argue. One way I see God clearly is to have a regular observance of the Lord's day with God's people among the assembly of righteous, where I hear the word preached, where I sing, I celebrate, and I have rich fellowship. I get a vision of God. So, so fourth commandment, um, rhythms of grace. Um, let me show you this. There's a guy named Richard Swinson. He's a physician. He was on the medical faculty, uh, teaching faculty at the Medi University of Wisconsin at Madison, home of the Badgers. Um, and a few years ago, he kind of stepped out of medicine as a full-time career, and he became kind of a futurologist. And he's written some really good books, um, five or six books. I really like all but one of them, and I like that okay. But anyway, he, he has what he calls a profusion graph. This didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to, but I'll explain it. Really, you could go back to 1800. Pretty amazing. And, and since, since Gutenberg did the printing press, and the, which is, wasn't that 1450? Is that right? 1450? Is that right? Something like that. 14, yeah, 50. Gutenberg did the printing press. Uh, we've bumped along. Knowledge has done this. Just incrementally, and I tell people all the time, Jonathan Edwards, who the Encyclopedia Britannica said may be the most brilliant man in the history of America, died in 1758. He was a great preacher. John, he said Jonathan Edwards, he had 300 books in his library. 300. That's it. But you bump along and, and then you hit, he says, he says about 1960 or so. He says really 68. But, and then all of a sudden you, go, you do a hockey stick. And, and, and knowledge and, and he, he did this graph before 2007 when the smartphone came out. But he says, with this knowledge has come an explosion of opportunities and so forth and so on. And he said, it is unbelievable how much our lives have changed. A profusion graph. It's, it's, just, it's just there. So this is a book by a guy named Thomas Friedman. He's a columnist for the New York Times. I've read a couple of his books. Now, this is a pretty good book. I love the title. I love the first few chapters and the last chapter. But... It's entitled, Thank You for Being Late. And he gives this illustration that's way beyond me, except that I, in college I drove a Volkswagen Beetle. So I understand what he's saying here. To a degree. This is what he says. This is written in 2016. But hear this. This is amazing to me. He says, um, he says if you took Intel's first-generation microchip from 1971, which was the 4004, and the latest chip Intel has on the market today, again, 2016, 
the sixth generation Intel core processor, you will see that Intel's latest chip offers 3,500 times more performance, is 90,000 times more energy efficient, and is about 60,000 times lower in cost. To put it more vividly, Intel engineers did a rough calculation of what would happen if you took a 1971 Volkswagen Beetle, I think I drove a 1970-69, and, and proved it at the same rate. This is what happened to the, to the Volkswagen Beetle. The Beetle would be able to go, go about 300,000 miles per hour. Think about it, that's, that's fast. My, my beetle never went faster than 80 on downhill, you know, with the feet hitting the pavement like Fred Flintstone. It would get 2 million miles per gallon of gas, and it would cost 4 cents. Intel engineers also estimated that if automobile fuel efficiency improved at the same rate, you could, roughly speaking, drive a car your whole life on one tank of gas. Now, that's not going to happen, by the way, but... but what I'm saying is that this, this profusion, the opportunities, the incredible knowledge explosion is, is part of the dynamic of what we deal with. And I would say to you that if we're going to be people who prosper under the hand of God, we've got to think through soberly, recovering the concept of remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Because our lives are going, going, going. I love the title of this book. It's called Thank You for Being Late. Thomas Friedman is a New York Times columnist. He's going, going, going. He's traveling all over the world doing research, writing columns for the New York Times, winning all types of, I think, won the Pulitzer Prize. And so he said, a, a, a year before he wrote this book, he said, I had an appointment at a coffee shop in New York. I was writing a column doing some research. And, and the person who was supposed to be there was late. And he said, uh, I sat there fuming because my time was at a premium. And I kept looking at my watch. And he, he was five minutes late at that time. And he said, I went and got another refill of coffee. and said, I'm just going to sit back. So I sat back and I started watching the people in the sidewalk. Looked around the coffee shop. He said, I even eavesdropped on the conversation behind me. <laughs> he said, it's a pretty cool conversation. The guy came in 30, 35 minutes late. He said, I got caught up in traffic. I'm so sorry. I know you're right from the New York Times. And he said, no, thank you for being late. So for the first time in months, I just sat and I was quiet and I enjoyed it. And see, I think the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, is a chance for us to say, thank you, almighty God, for letting me slow down. Thank you for letting me stop to hear. So, so the Lord's Day should be a festive day of rest. I came across this poem recently. It's kind of a silly poem, but I liked it. It's based on the it's a paradigm of the 23rd Psalm. It says, the clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me to deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leaves me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My texts overflow. 
Surely fatigue and time pressure shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. Amen. Well, so I'm a terrible sleeper. I will confess that. And my daughter has bought me a sleep ring. So there's an app on my phone that tells me how much I sleep every night. So even when I wake up, I go, oh, gosh, I don't sleep well. But being somebody that's a sleep struggler, I've, I've read a lot of books on sleep. I can tell you all about sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, light sleep, narcolepsy, whatever you want to talk about, I can tell you. Do you know that today we sleep two hours less per night as Americans than we did 70 years ago? Two hours less. That's not healthy. Um, it, it's, we just do. I grew up with my granddad, lived not far from me, tenant farmer, uh, deputy sheriff. In fact, my, my dad and his two siblings lived in the basement of the Yakin County Jail for six years. And uh, as, as my grandma would cook food for the prisoners and iron their clothes and wash them. And so I sometimes tell people my dad spent six years in prison as a child. It's a, a good conversation starter. But my, my granddad was just a very simple man. I was in the second or third grade. I was sitting with him. He was, he was keeping me one night, and he said, your, your parents need to pick you up. I said, well, yeah. So my granddad, he said, well, it's a quarter to eight. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'll remember this conversation. He said, it's time to go to bed. I said, granddad, it's a quarter to eight. And he said, it's dark, isn't it? I said, well, yes, sir, it's dark. And then years later, I'm in seminary, and I read a book on the New Testament era. And they make a strong statement that the people in the day of Jesus only burned oil on specific celebratory nights because oil was expensive. And so they did burn the midnight oil because they didn't have oil to burn. And so when it got dark, what did they do? They went to bed. Or they burned some candles and they got ready for bed and, you know, turned on Pandora and listened, easy listening, you know, to calm down. And, and, and so I, I'm sitting there going, wow. But we, we are just, we ratcheted up. And so I, I, I Googled. So it's, it's getting dark. You start today in Jerusalem, the land of the Lord, the disciples, the apostles. The sun is going to set at 551. Today in Charleston, South Carolina, the sun will set at 6.04. It's going to get dark. So it's a day of festive rest. It's a day to stop and say, thank you, Lord, for slowing me down. Number two, the, the, the Sabbath builds godliness. It builds godliness. See, I need regularity in teaching um, and hearing the word and, and, and singing the word. Most people who drift, and there'll be people here today who will drift over the next two years. You'll, you'll, two years from now, you'll, you'll not be where you are today. And that breaks my heart. I don't want to go there. I don't want you to go there. But, but, but they're going to drift. So most people don't wake up and say, oh, man, today is February the 16th. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to become a lifelong substance abuser. I'm going to just get drunk every night the rest of my life. 
They don't, they don't wake up and say, today's September, or excuse me, February the 16th, 2020. I'm going to go out and see how many women I can seduce or men I can lure into sexual immorality. I don't do it. It's just drift, 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 drift. Today I'm, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to become a vile, uncaring person and just butcher people with my tongues. No. It, so there's a book, the book of Hebrews talks about this, this very issue and, and it says this. It's talking about people that are kind of, kind of begin to drift and it says this. It says, brothers, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it. Drift. And so the Lord's day is a day for me to say, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm talking. I'm praying. I'm reminded. Peter Second Peter writes this, chapter 1 and verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you, remind, remind you of th- these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the Putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. Because Peter says, I'm, I just want to remind you. And so we come to the Lord's house, and, and, and we, are, we are reminded. There's a statement here from C.S. Lewis. And this is what he says. I think it's great. He says, the first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change, your emotions change. The, the, the next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayer and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe, neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So, guy Russell Moore that I like a lot says this. He says his desire is that when his boys go to church, they are occasionally bored. They're bored. It's the same so you stand up, many churches every week, I wish we'd hear more often, stand up, let's confess our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Oh, yeah, he was conceived by the Virgin Mary, born, born, suffered from Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Yeah, 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 whatever. And this, they said, let's pray the prayer together that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Got it, got it, got it, got it. You know, because the Bible says receive the word planted that can save your soul. Because sometime down the path, whether they're in college or they're a young adult or somebody's saying, what do you believe? And you say, well, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. Therefore, I am not just a glob of nothingness. I've been made in the image of God by a great creator king who has no beginning, who has no end. And then I believe in my Lord Jesus Christ, who was supernaturally born of a virgin, historically born under Pontius Pilate, a real body. He suffered, bled, and died. He descended into Hades. He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's going to come again. He's going to call history to a close. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
and the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And I believe in the forgiveness of sins by the blood of the cross. And I believe in the life everlasting. Amen. That's what I believe. So, man, boom, 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 boom. Well, they're in a tight place. Let's pray. What are you going to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, thank you for being Abba Father. Hallowed be thy name. Blessed be your name. Honored be your name. Your kingdom come in my life, in this relationship, in this child, in this job. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because that leads to flourishing and joy and purpose. See, this is what you do. So I say to you, don't, don't drift. And part of not drifting is you're with God's people on the Lord's day. It's just simple. It's real simple. And I say that, I um, went to a conference years ago, eight, nine years ago, just nine pastors, had two major leaders there to talk to us. Anyway, they said, here's, here's what's happening in America today. It says, you know, when you guys started ministry for me, 1982, as a pastor, most everybody was in church at least three or four Sundays a month. They were just there. And we had Sunday night church and Wednesday night church. I mean, we just... They said, now, if you're in church twice a month, you're considered a good church member. People are traveling. They're playing sports. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're just, just not happening. You guys have to really deal with that. Oh, breaks my heart. So, so, okay, number three, it builds continuity. Continuity means that it's an unbroken and consistent existence or cooperation or of operation of something over a period of time. Continuity, I believe, is a necessity for flourishing under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So continuity means this continuous. It, it builds godliness. And, and, and so I read a book a couple months ago. He was talking about American life. And he made this comment. And I went, unbelievable. He said, in the year 1900, the average American never traveled more than 11 miles from their front door. Wow. 11 miles. And you think about it, every community had a little square, little churches. They met their spouse. People said, well, you're, you're from Western North Carolina. Did you marry your cousin? I said, ah, a lot of people do. <laughs> you don't travel more than 11 miles from your front door, it's going to happen. You know, West, West Virginia, you know, you got it. What do you say at these, these get-togethers? What do you say at, at everything you say? So, hi, cuz. Yeah, hi, cuz. Hi, cuz. Hi, cuz. People make fun of us. Don't let them do it. Upstate, boy, bad in the upstate. Don't, don't, don't let him give you a hard time. Listen, the royalty all married their cousins. So, which is why we had World War I, but that's beside the, the issue. So, so anyway, you, you, they, they, they didn't travel more than 11 miles. I, there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon, great British preacher, died in 1898. Spurgeon gave a sermon about 1880. I read it in seminary. I cannot find it. I've looked for it, but I think I read it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I read it. Let's say I did read it. But in the sermon, he said, I lament the fact that something is being mass-produced today that was started being mass-produced about 15 years ago, he said, and that allows people to go people go places anonymously. It takes them away from the church area on, their, on Sunday, and it will lead to bad things happen in the future. And that mass-production thing was what? This evil thing, the bicycle. He said it destroys continuity. 
I'm just, I'm just, let me read a couple things here. This is from a journal article on loneliness in America written in 2018. Overall, roughly 40% of Americans reported regularly feeling lonely in 2010, which is up from 20% in the mid-1980s. So 20% to 40% feeling lonely. According to a sociologist, a sociological report called the General Social Survey, the number of Americans who say they have no one they can confide in nearly tripled between 1985 and 2004. Now, these are daunting statistics. At the survey's end, the average person reported having just two confidants. Why are there so many, why are there many reasons for this? Sherry Turkle, who wrote Alone Together, a really good book. You ought to read that book. Uh, says places blamed squarely on the rise of digital culture. All of us old people fault the iPhone. Just, just take it for granted. We always will fault the iPhone. <laughs> Connecting meaningfully with others in person requires us to be ourselves, openly and genuinely ourselves. Conversation by text or Facebook messenger may be filled with smile emojis. Did I say that right? Okay. Emojis but they leave us feeling empty because they lack depth. She goes on and says this. Without the demands and rewards of intimacy and empathy, we end up feeling alone while we're even together online. And when we get together, we are quite frankly less prepared than before to listen. We have lost empathy skills, and of course this too makes us more alone. That's amazing stuff. This is why traditional efforts to reach out to the lonely by, say, going to a nursing home are often unsuccessful. They fail to foster deep, meaningful engagement. The encounter is pleasant but fleeting, and the effects don't last. A Dutch sociologist, Jenny Gerveld, says, quote, if I talk to someone for an hour and then leave, they're still lonely. She spent 50 years studying loneliness, and she says the basis of a meaningful bond is reciprocity, back and forth. A lonely person can't just answer a lot of questions for an hour and feel connected. He or she has to do something continually. And one of the remedies for this, according to this journal article, is to spend seven minutes in meaningful conversation with people. Still greet people, but look for seven minutes of meaningful conversation. So I, I, I say that. Let me tell you this. I need continuity as a believer. I love our community group on Wednesday night. Seven, eight couples. We talk together, laugh, pray. It's just, I, I love them. I love my man-to-man table, a bunch of boring guys on Friday morning eating eggs. Um, I, 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 need, I need continuity. There's a, a dear couple that I love much, and they've been going through a season of incredible change with tremendous obligations, and they're doing it very well. But for the last oh, month, I've called them five times and said, can we have lunch or can we do this? And I said, we'd love to, but we've got to do this, this, and this. I said, I, so I keep on you know, ca- calling them. I'm, I've been like a gnat you know, in their ear. So last Sunday morning, I texted and said, can we have lunch together? We're free. We went out to lunch. Laughed, talked, shared. I left so encouraged. And I said during the meal, I took them and I said, listen, I'm sorry if I'm bothering you. 
I need you guys in my life. I need your freshness of energy. I need your love for Jesus. I need your commitment that I see in your family. I need you in my life. I need that. I need it. You need it. So that the, and the Lord's Day brings continuity. It, 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 just, it just does. Number four, I need to prepare. The Lord's Day lets me prepare for the coming week. See, we, we end, this is the first day of the week. Weekend's over. This is the first day of the week. Midnight, last night, boom, first day of the week. So, so this is the first day of the week. I should enter this day maybe a little bit frazzled, maybe a little bit tired, maybe a little bit. But, but as I, I'm, I'm with God's people, and as I hear the word, as I speak the word, as I have conversations, I leave encouraged. I leave built up and, and strengthened in the faith and, and just ready, ready to go. For, see, I, I enter discouraged, but I leave prepared. I spend Sunday afternoon, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I sit down and think, what will my week look like? What are some key things I want to accomplish this week in the name of Jesus and loving people and caring for those around me? What do I do? I write them down. It's, it's what you do. You, so you prepare for the coming week on the Lord's Day. Use the Lord's Day. To, to, to prepare for the rest of the week. Now, I want to argue that we need to, to, we need to be determined to observe the Lord's day. I want you to hear me. I'm going to say some things that you're not going to agree with, but I'm going to say them. I mean, some of you won't agree with them. Hopefully, everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. Now, number one. Parents, worship with your children. Um, if you have a child that's third grade and above, worship with your children. Don't send them to Bible study or Sunday school. You come to worship, worship together, then they go to Sunday school. And you can go to a class or you can hold babies in the nursery or you can do parking detail or you can help with the coffee. You can, there's a thousand things you can do. Your children need to see you worshiping with your spouse or worshiping as an adult, singing, listening, thinking, reflecting, hearing the word. It's very important. I can only speak from my experience. Uh, I grew up in a church where Sundays, sometimes the Bible was never read except in a responsive reading. It was not a Bible church, not a gospel church. But man, we were there from a small child. Last service, I said two years old. I don't think I was two, but I was small. I guarantee you by the first grade, I was there. And I would sit beside my dad. And occasionally, I would be out of line. Well, more than occasionally, I'd be out of line. He would thump my head. Boom. My mom sat in the choir. And those, I don't know why sometimes choirs sit there and look at the back of the pastor's head. Sometimes that's an improvement, to be bluntly honest. But... So that she sat in the choir, and I'd be misbehaving. I'd catch her eye, and her, 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 her body language was saying, I'm going to kill you when you get home. So I would, I would straighten up, but I sat there. I sat in the same place, not a little church, church probably big as this, the stage, not very big. And, and right to my right sat NL and Hattie Huspeth. They were so old, they should have been on Mount Rushmore. And they were, I always thought, they're going to die today before we get out of here. They were old. And, and then right, right up there sat my, my general practitioner doctor, Dr. Wood. What a character. 
always had a cigar in his mouth unless he was in church. Go to see him in his office, cigars in his mouth. He's unbelievably a great guy. There I sat my dentist. Nice guy, married to a really scary woman. <laughs> she was scary. Over here sat, sat Lexi Williams, who taught me the Bible every Wednesday night for years, several years. I found out years later she was married to an abusive husband, but she followed and served the Lord. I sit there beside my dad, and I look down at his hands. He, he installed carpet and linoleum floors, and he was a World War II vet, and I look at his strong hands, and I would think one day my hands will be the hands of a man. Now he's 94. And when those hands hit the thing, they just, the, the skin peels back and starts bleeding. <laughs> but I can't tell you the, 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 the absolute confidence and joy I had just to be among those people who loved me. And I want that for your kids. I want them to say all that, yeah. I, I can't tell you, church, I never, ever, ever leave Sunday unencouraged. I mean, unless I hear about somebody that's in some deep sin that just kills me or somebody just died. I always leave encouraged. I mean, many times I come to church here and the sermon stinks, but I, I still, I'm still okay with that. <laughs> that was a joke. You should laugh at that. <laughs> come on. Anyway, but I, I, I come in and I, I, see, I see young families. I see, I see a, a group of older women who have a Sunday school class and, the, and almost every woman in that class has buried their husband and they still vibrantly love Christ. And many of them are in a correspondence course sending letters to prisoners with Bible lessons and they grade their tests and they give them literature. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. And I... I, 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 I I see our college students who are going for it, and I go, wow, and I see our singles in the last hour, and I see all these people who just love Christ, and I go, wow, and at the end of the service, we're going to sing a song in a few minutes, and down here in the first service, there's a little four-year-old, Nora Kate Brown, who sang with all of her heart, off-key, and I loved it. I loved it. I love the body of Christ. Please receive this for what it's worth. I'm, I'm not against sports leagues. I think sports are fine. I love sports. But it, it grieves me that people are involved in sports leagues on, on the Lord's Day. Occasionally, well, but I mean, a, a lot of times consistently. And, and you know, the thing, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to blow their cover. These coaches come to you. And they say to parents who are enamored with their kids, we think these children might be Division I athletes. Let me tell you something. They're not. <laughs> I'm just going to be bloody honest. We've had a lot of athletes in this church, well, maybe two or three Division I in 38 years. The odds are stacked against you. <laughs> I had a child who loved me. I had two great kids. And I had a, I won't tell you the gender of my daughter. That was a, again, that was another joke. Come on. Anyway, so she played volleyball, and they came to us and said, we think, we really think you've got a, a star on your hand. I mean, really, one of her coaches. I said, okay, well, of course. 
They said, we want her to be involved in junior Olympic volleyball. I said, okay. Well, you write a check for $580, and you take her to a gym every Sunday for about four months. Stroke the check. Went to the gym. 50 girls. How many gyms do you guys have? Eight. So there are 400 young women in the Charleston area that are future Olympic athletes. At $580 a piece, I went, this is a good marketing ploy. I say that to say, just guard the Sabbath. I mean, I don't want to come down hard. And I, I, I love my kids. I live back here. I my kids. My kids played all kinds of sports. And I coached them. Even if I knew nothing about the sport, I was coaching it. Okay. I understand that the Lord's Day is for your health and flourishing and for continuity. Prepare for Sunday on Saturday. Lay out your clothes, cut up some food, put it in the fridge. Think about when to go to bed so you can get up early. And I, boy, this is tough during college football season, but it's, just, it's tough. And as you prepare, understand, it's not in the Bible, but let me tell you, the demons of hell are unleashed on the hour before church starts in your families. I mean, it's bad. And some, a lot of you are laughing because you know it. I mean, this is, this is what happens. You get married, and invariably, somebody that thinks if you're 10 minutes earlier on time, marry somebody who's 10 minutes late thinks that's fashionably on time. And boy, it's conflictual. And so this happens on Sunday morning all the time. You, 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 the husband is dressed. He's looked at the sports section. He's ready to go. The kids are dressed. They're in the back seat. They're buckled in. He's in the front seat. It's a 50-minute drive to church. It's 20 minutes before they should be at church. And if they go right now, they'll just be five minutes early. But the wife is nowhere to be seen. So the husband does the godly thing. He blows the horn. <laughs> just in case the wife doesn't know they're in the car. And she's forgotten the time. And so he blows the horn. The kids are in the back. By this time, they're already getting each other's nerves. And, and so 30 seconds later, he thinks, hmm, maybe she didn't hear me. So he blows the horn again. And uh, about 30 seconds, the wife comes out of the house. She's got the makeup in one hand, and she's kind of running down. And she gets in the car, and she slams the door, and she flips down the visor and slips up the, the thing that gives you light. And she says, you know, you know if, you would, if you would make the breakfast or dress the kids, maybe we could leave before, when you want to. And you're thinking, I, I cleared the table. What do you expect? But he doesn't say it because he's smart. But he doesn't respond. He just stares straight ahead. And the kids start acting up. And the husband does another godly thing. He just does that. Remember that? I did that all the time. I, I slung low so I just hit the legs. But you just, and they're in the back seat dodging the hand, you know, like that. And the wife looks straight ahead, and finally the kids realize something's going on, so they clam up. And it's stony silence all the way to church. You get in the church, you park, you get out, and you see Bob and Jane, and they say, hey, doing? And you go, we're doing great. 
Life is good. Listen, that just happens just when you get here, confess your sin as you walk in the door and come here and worship. Because the devil jumps all over you when you're trying to get to church. But prepare. It's a couple other things. I'm, I'm done. So a couple of things. Number one is practice hospitality. I love, we need to have Rosaria Butterfield in here again because she is the hospitality guru and she does it way beyond what 15 normal people would do. But she is so good. Have people over. We don't have Sunday night church here. And one reason is so people can go home and just enjoy. Have some friends over and just open your house. And if they're believers, talk about the Lord's day and what you're learning in the Bible, what the sermon was about, and just and laugh together and make a meal together and celebrate life together. Man, but practice, open your homes. And I would just say to those of us who struggle with this that opening your home doesn't mean it has to be, everything has to be in place and you have to have a five-course meal that, that rivals, you know, what's the place downtown, serve steaks, Hall's Chop House, yeah, or, or even, you know, Moe's. It doesn't have to do that. I mean, just open your home and, and, and let people come in. It's so good. It's so good. I never forget as a college student an Air Force tactical officer who about every weekend just had me over to his house. He and his wife and their three little girls just opened their house. Just let me come over and hang out, eat, laugh. Man, hospitality. And the other thing is just think about how we can make the Sabbath day really our delight. Isaiah says this, that if you honor the Lord on the Sabbath day and you live with that orientation, then you will, then you will mount up really with, in places of joy and peace. So I want that. I want that for you. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for the day. Thanks for giving us the Lord's day. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a festive day of rest. And I pray we'd rest today. I pray that you would build in our lives the things of Jesus so that tomorrow as we go out to school, to our job, in our neighborhoods, to the nations, that we would live purposefully and love you with all of our hearts, Lord, by the power of the Spirit. So thank you for today. Thank you for this wonderful church that's loved us so well as a family through the years. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.